So we find ourselves in Romans chapter 8, uh, finishing up the chapter. Finally, we've, we've been in this chapter for a long time, uh, and here we are now finding ourselves at the end, verses 31 through 39. Romans 8, 31 through 39. Please follow along with me as I read it out loud. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. We pray for us as we approach his word tonight. Lord God, we thank you so much for your love. We thank you so much for your grace. Thank you so much for your promises, Lord, that we can trust them. We know they are true, but we know that you always keep your promises. Lord, I pray that you would speak to us tonight through your word. God, that you would give me strength and clarity uh, to speak only your truth. God, I pray that you'd be working in our hearts tonight for your glory and your praise. In Christ's name, amen. amen. Years and years ago when I first got my PlayStation 1. Uh, I had many games that came from China. Um, do you remember, the, do you remember the, the best one, Uncle? Remember him? And eight one, you know, the one that brings everything from China and says the best one? Well, he brought like a Chinese PlayStation 1 and like all these Chinese games. Um, most of them I could not understand, but some of them were in English. And one of them was one of my all-time favorite games, even to this day, which was Final Fantasy VII, the best Final Fantasy of all. <clears throat> okay, I got a couple fans out there. That's, that's cool. That's cool. Anyways, so I'm playing my PlayStation 1, my Final Fantasy VII, and if you ever play that game, it is hundreds of hours that you play. And back then, you would save your progress on a memory card, a little thing like, like this big, and you put it in the PlayStation, and you save it to that memory card. And they're little files. And so anyway, I, it, this is a three-disc game. And I'm on my third disc. I'm at the very end. Try to beat the last boss. Kept dying, so I'm out, like, training in the wilderness to build my powers all this stuff. This is starting to sound very nerdy. I did not expect this. <laughs> Anyways, I made it very far, playing hours and hours of games, hundreds of hours probably. One day, I don't know which brother it was, but one of my brothers went in, started a new game of Final Fantasy VII, because I was playing it, and then went to save it 
save their progress. Little did they know that they were saving over my files. So I go in to play the game, and I'm like, why am I at the beginning of the game? And it was because they saved over my files, all my progress, gone. So I started over. And I was like, that was a fun game. I'll do it again. So I played hours and hours and hours, hundreds of hours, getting to the same spot that I got. But this time I made two save files. I made one, and then like I went down all these empty like slots and then saved one like super down low so that there's no chance someone would save over the second one. I'm like, okay, I'm good. I'm secure. This is, I'm, I'm fine. So then I'm playing, I'm training, training, whatever. I come back later, put in the game, start it up, and the memory card had corrupted data, and the whole thing was lost. Again, all progress, gone. This was gaming in the 90s. Anyways, maybe you've experienced something like that. Maybe you've experienced times where something precious to you was taken from you or, or, or became lost. Or, or broken, or something happened, something that you that meant so much to you is gone. There is nothing truly, fully, or confidently secure for us in this life. And security really is a, a big desire for people, big desire for humans. We want security. We want assurances in this life. But in reality, nothing is really fully secure for us. There's always the risk of losing something that is precious to us. And while that's true for all things in this life, that is not true for God. And that is not true for the Christian's salvation. In this passage, we see the complete, full security the Christian has in their salvation and in the love in which they've received from God. Now, Paul had just finished, if you were here last week... You might remember that Paul had just finished what seemed to be the climax of his argument for the total eternal security of the Christian salvation. We looked at God's work, or rather, we, we, yeah, we looked at God's work of salvation. We looked at this, what we call the golden chain of salvation, a chain that cannot be broken for the Christian, in which it was God's work. From eternity to eternity, from, from foreknowledge to glorification. And it seemed as if there was nothing left to add. Like, Paul, like you covered it. You had it. How can it get any better than what we just said? And it really was a magnificent claim of the full assurance the Christian has in their relationship with God. But Paul's not done. He continues his argument of complete, total security of the Christian's salvation. And Paul now argues that nothing, nothing can separate us from the love of God. Tonight we're going to look at the total and complete security we have in God. And we're going to see that God will not separate us from his love. We're going to see that our sin will not separate us. From his love. We're going to see that hardships in this world will not separate us from a love. And really, we're going to see that nothing at all will separate us from the love of God. Now, it's important to understand 
that this security in which we're talking about, everything that I say about these truths and I say about these promises of God, these are true for the believer. These are true for the Christian. So when I say us, usually like in my notes, I don't say us, I'll say for the Christian. But tonight I'm saying us. When I say us, I mean the Christian. And so if you are not a Christian, please keep that in mind. That as long as you are not in Christ, these promises are not true for you. All right, so with that in mind, we look at our very first point, which is God will not separate us. God will not separate us. Again, will not separate the Christian. Verses 31 and 32. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? God will not separate us. We're going to look at two points here, subpoints to this. The first is that God is for us. You notice it's small font up there. We have a lot of points, okay? That's why. God is for us. God is for us. Now let's just stop right there. God is for us. He is for us. Like what an incredible truth and mystery and joy that we ought to soak in for hours that God is for us. He says, if God is for us, who can be against us? And the tense of that participle, if, in the Greek, it signifies a fulfilled condition. Not a possibility, but really it means because God is for us. There is assurance and confidence on God already fulfilled the fact that he is indeed for the Christian. God is for us. He has no business being for us. Like, let's stop and realize that. Who, who are we? We are his creation who rebelled and sinned against him. We are his enemies, hostile towards him. We worship the creation instead of the creator, instead of him. We are not good. We do not seek after God. We are guilty, wretched sinners deserving of his wrath. Like, that's who we are. But then Christ redeemed us. And that changes everything. We are no longer his enemies, but we are his children. We are no longer hostile to God, to God, but we are seated at his table. We now have been given the Holy Spirit, and we can worship him, and we can follow him. We now have been covered by the blood of Christ and covered by the righteousness of Christ and are now declared innocent before God. And so now, those things in which we once were no longer true for the Christian. But there has been a radical transformation for the Christian. And so now he is for us. That God is on our side. God has our back. God loves us. He cares for us. We belong to him. He is for us. This is a complete difference of how our relationship used to be with God. This complete difference of of the natural person, the person apart from Christ, is with God. Ephesians 2 says that there is a dividing wall of hostility between us and God. It says that we are children of wrath. But now that wall of hostility is gone. And God is for us. And who better to be for us than God himself? 
Who better to have on your side, to have in your corner, than God Almighty, creator, sustainer, ruler over all. God is for the Christian. And since God is for us, because he is for us, who can be against us? Now, Paul's not saying that no one is against the Christian. That's not what he means when he says, who can be against us? Because indeed, once, once you've been transferred into his kingdom, you put a target on your back. The world is against you. Your flesh is against you. The devil is against you. And the Christian will receive hostility and attacks and hardships from those three places. There is struggle and there is difficulty in following the Lord. But God is for us. And since he is for us, then who possibly will separate us from him? That's what he's saying. He's saying, who, who can be against us? Like, if God is for us, who can be against us? Christian, have confidence in God. Who can possibly separate you from God? Someone would have to be bigger and better than God to pry you out of his hand. But do not worry, because God is for you. And he will always be for you. And he will always secure you. God will not let anyone or anything separate you from his love. Because God is for you. And no one can overcome God. So that's what he's saying. He's saying God is for you. Who can be against you? Who can separate you? No one. Not with God, because he is for you. And he goes on to say that God has given us his son. God has given us his son. See, some may argue, they might say, well, yeah, no, no one's powerful enough to take us out of the hands of God. Like, I get that. God's for us. No, no one's greater than God. No one can pry us out of his hands. But what about God himself? If he gave us salvation, surely he could take it. Someone might quote, he gives and he takes away. Completely out of context. But they might say that. No, they'll say, well, since he's sovereign and since he's an omnipotent God, he well, might he take away salvation from us. But this passage makes clear that God will not separate us from himself. God will not grow tired of us. God will not lose patience with us. He will not just have enough of us. God will not change his mind. For God to do so would be for God to break his many, many promises to the Christian. But God is for us. And yet some still will doubt. There are times, Christian, when we will doubt the love of God. We will doubt if he is for us or not. I have doubted. There have been times when I've said, God, are, are you for me? Because right now, it really does not feel like you're for me. If anything, it feels like you're against me. And Paul says, how can you doubt how can you doubt when he gave his only son for you? That's what he's getting at here. 
That's what he's saying when he says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? What more does God need to do to prove his absolute eternal love for the Christian than the fact that he sent his only son to die for you? God sent his son to die on our behalf. This was his purpose. This was his plan. That God the Father and God the Son had perfect communion with each other for all of eternity. Since before time began, they were in perfect communion with each other. And it was on that cross in which Christ bore our sins, as it says in Isaiah 53, that it was the will of God to crush him. In which they had perfect communion, a perfect relationship. And then God the Father crushed him on the cross. His only son. Because he loves us. And do you doubt his love for you? I I, I hope you can understand the, the depth of what that means for God to give his son for us. And maybe it's hard because many of you guys don't have children. I don't know. I think that is something that changed for me when I became a father. Understanding the deep love that I have for my son. It, I, I hope this, this illustration, it, it, it falls, it has holes through it, but I hope it helps a little bit. I... My close friends, the few that I have, not very many, the few that I have, I do love them very much. And I would die for them. I think I would. I say that. But they mean very much to me. And so if, if in the situation, I would die for them. But if we were in a situation where I had to choose the life of my friend or the life of my son, no question, I would choose my son. I would, I, I, I love my friends, but I'm not giving up my son. I can't, he's my son. And yet God the Father gave up his son for us. I, I, I cannot imagine that, that kind of love that he willingly gave his son for us. Do you see the deep love of God for us that he would give his son for us? And yet we doubt his love. And yet we may be tempted to believe that that God would separate himself from us. How would it be possible that God would sacrifice his own son for us and then later decide to just to, to cast us out and, and, and not bring us to completion. Like, it makes no sense. If God loved us in such a way that while we were enemies, while we were disgusting, wretched sinners, that he would give up his only son for us, would he then abandon us after we've been cleansed and made new and declared right and adopted into his family? Like, if if God loved us in such an amazing way while we were his enemies, would he forsake us as his children? Christian, do not doubt 
the love of God. And do not doubt the security that you have in his love. God gave his son for you. Christ died on the cross for you. What more do you need for him to prove his love for you? There's no greater love than the love of God. There's no more secure or, or, or confidence in a love than the love that we receive from God. It is the purest, most complete, most eternal, and everlasting love that exists. God's love is the greatest love of all. And God has shown his love by giving his son for us. Jesus Christ, the son of God, is the greatest thing that God could give us. And he did. And he gave him over to death so that we could live. Christian, may you never doubt the love of God. And in times of doubt, there will be times of doubt. Look to the cross. Look to the cross and remember the great love that you have been shown by God. So we see in the first couple of verses that God will not separate us. And then we see that our sin will not separate us. Verses 33 and 34. He says, then who, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus, the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Two points here. First, God has cleared us of all charges. God has cleared us of all charges. Paul says, who's going to bring a charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies, right? Not the accuser. The accuser is not the one. It's not the one who, who brings the charge, but God is judge. God is the justifier. So what Paul is saying is, don't let someone else judge you and say that, that you're no longer loved by God. They don't justify you. God does. This would be like someone who, who says, you're not a Christian because you don't do these things and, and you don't do that. Or you're not a Christian because you do these things or, or you do that. And so they say, therefore, you're, you're not a Christian. Therefore, God does not love you because of these things. And I'm bringing these charges against you and telling you. God doesn't love you. Now, I will say this quickly, that we, we are to make judgments, but we are not judge. And there's a difference. There, there are times in which it is right to, as best we can, discern the spiritual health of others so that we can better know how to minister to them. Right? Like, for instance, if, for me, to, to assume that everyone in this room is a Christian would be detrimental to the ministry and to the souls of many of you. But I just say, everyone here is a Christian, so I'll speak as if you are. And to assume that everyone in this room is, is not a Christian, let's say, including the staff, that would be detrimental to the ministry and the spiritual health of many of you, right? Like, So I, I don't know the hearts of anyone in this room. I, I can't judge you, your souls, but I do make judgments. Do you, you see the difference? Now, while I think that this primarily is talking about judging others, right, or bringing a charge against us about others, 
I think this can also be talking about ourselves judging ourselves. Do you ever struggle with doubting or salvation or doubting God's love for you because of the remaining sin in your life? This doubt maybe comes from other people, but it can also come from yourself. That you may genuinely be a Christian, and you may be struggling with a sin, and maybe it's a dark sin, and maybe it's a sin that you've been struggling with for a long time. And so as a result of this ongoing sin, you feel as if God no longer loves you. You feel as if there's, there's no way he would still accept you and welcome you into his kingdom. And maybe you start listening to those whispers. You start listening to those lies that says, how could God love you when, when you continue to sin like that? You really think God still loves you? Are you sure God actually loves you? I, I, I know I wouldn't. You sure God still loves you? Yeah, you? Why are you still sinning? And you begin to doubt God's love. You begin to doubt the security of his love. You begin to doubt his perfect, unchanging love. Don't listen to these lies. Listen to truth. From one of my my favorite hymns. We sang it tonight before the throne of God above. I think, Hannah, you picked it. We didn't even talk. Thank you for choosing that. The second verse when it says, when Satan tempts me to despair. He tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within. Of word, I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Should, should we be convicted of our sin? Should we feel the weight and hatred and disgust of our sin? Yes, absolutely. But it doesn't stop there. Christian, we do not end with guilt, but upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Christian, remember the forgiveness you have in Christ. Remember what Christ accomplished on your behalf. Remember that he bore your sin and guilt. God's love for you is perfect and unchanging. Because your life is covered by the righteousness of Christ and by the blood of Christ. Christian, you will sin, but God's love for you will never change. Not even the slightest. There is no charge of condemnation against the Christian. That's why he said, who's going to bring a charge against you? He said, there is no charge of condemnation against the Christian. You're standing before God and remains innocent. Why? Because of the finished work of Christ. And there's nothing that we can do to change that. We cannot out-sin the grace of God. We cannot sin so much that we exhaust the grace of God and are no longer accepted by Him. God is greater than your sin. And God's love for you will always remain. No matter what. He has cleared you of all charges. And we are now free in Christ. He goes on. He's, oh, the next verse is so beautiful. What he says is this. Your next point is that Jesus is victoriously interceding for us. Jesus is victoriously interceding for us. And, and he just, he's just like, you know, I'm just going to just 
talk about the gospel just real quick. He says, Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Christian, we can know with confidence that there is no condemnation, even in our deepest sins, because Christ is at the right hand of God, interceding for us. Paul just lays out beautifully the work of Christ on behalf of the Christian. First, he says, Christ Jesus is the one who died. He is the one. He's the one who should not have died. Why? Because the wages of sin is death. However, Jesus never sinned. And despite being sinless, he died on our behalf. And he went to the cross and died a sinner's death. A criminal's death. Hanging there as if he committed the worst crimes imaginable. And yet he's sinless. What? And it's not just that he died a physical death, but in that death, he took on the full penalty of our sin and the condemnation that we deserve. The wrath of God in which was stored up was poured onto Christ. He is the one who died so that we don't have to, Christian. Death needed to be paid for. It could not be overlooked. But Christian, Christ took your death for you so that you will never experience a drop of the wrath of God. But more than that, he says, he says more than that, he was raised. The grave could not hold him. Three days later, he rose from the dead, conquering sin and death. Christ raising from the dead, it proves his victory over sin and death. As one scholar put it, he said, his death paid the price for our sins and his resurrection gave absolute proof that the price was paid. See, if he remained dead, then all his claims and all his promises would be void. It'd be meaningless. But in his resurrection, we see a stamp, a seal that says victory, proof that the penalty was paid in full mission accomplished. And shortly after he rose from the dead, he ascended into heaven to sit at the right hand of God. And that's where he is today. He is at the right hand of God interceding for us. You see, if he did not rise from the dead, if he was still dead, he could not intercede for us. But indeed, he has risen from the dead. And he is interceding on our behalf. And it's because Jesus continuously makes intercession for all believers that we can know that we are eternally secured in the love of God. Jesus is sitting at the right hand of God, interceding for us, securing us as the one who accomplished all of it. Jesus lived our perfect life. Jesus died our death. Jesus rose from the dead in victory over sin. And Jesus intercedes for us. Christian, we will sin. We will fall in great ways. And when that sin reaches the courtroom of God, we have the risen Savior, Jesus Christ, at the right hand of God, interceding for us, saying, 
I died for that one. I paid for that one. My blood covers that sin. And so there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He intercedes on our behalf. He is our defense. So rest assured, Christian, of the security you have in Christ who intercedes on your behalf. Your sin, while maybe great, has been paid for in full by Jesus, who is at the right hand of God, interceding for you. Now, if you are not a Christian, if you're here and you are not a Christian, you have no advocate but yourself. You have no defense but yourself. And you will stand before God in his courtroom and you will hear the charges. You will be guilty. See, whereas the Christian has Jesus interceding on their behalf, they have Jesus as their advocate. They have Jesus as their defense attorney that says they are guilty, but I already paid the penalty for them already on the cross. But if you are not a Christian, you stand in God's courtroom alone. And you have no defense. All you are left with are your guilty charges that condemn you to eternal wrath. And you say, this is my defense. I, I, I have nothing. I am guilty. But there is hope. And that hope is in Jesus Christ who died, who rose again, and who was interceding for all Christians. Will you continue to deny and reject the free gift of salvation found in Jesus Christ? Will you continue to refuse to bow the knee to God in repentance and instead to continue to rebel against Him? Will you continue to trust in your own ways instead of placing your faith in Jesus? I beg you, do not continue, but turn to Christ, who is our hope, who is our Savior. There is life and there is salvation in Jesus Christ. Next, as we see what else will not separate us, we've seen that God will not separate us. We've seen that our sin will not separate us. Next, we see... That hardships will not separate us. Verses 35 through 37. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Two subpoints for this. The first is this that the love of Jesus is greater than all hardships. The love of Jesus is greater than all hardships. As promised in many places in Scripture, the Christian will have hardships in their life, they will endure persecution, they will suffer, they will go through trials. And the temptation may be to question whether these things can separate us from the love of God. 
In fact, Paul places many things on the table. He says, tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sore. And he's saying none of which can separate us from the love of God. When hard times come into our life, it can be easy to question the love of God. Why would God allow this to happen? Does he love me? Do I actually belong to him? If I did, then I'm his child. Why would he let something like this happen? Maybe I don't belong to him. He wouldn't allow something like this to happen to someone he loves. These are the questions we ask ourselves. But Paul argues that no hardships in this world change God's love for us or separate us from his love. Trials do not equal a change in or a diminishing of God's love for you. Paul went through many trials in his life. As he writes this, he's not writing this from someone who just had a cushy life. This is a man who endured many trials and tribulations and suffering because of his love for God. This is a man who speaks from experience, who knows with all certainty that nothing in this world, no hardships or trials, can separate you from the love of God. While Paul endured many hardships in this world, he is now in the presence of Christ in heaven. Your trials and hardships in this world, it may be great. And I know some of you suffer greatly. And it may be caused by the natural consequences of this world or may be brought on because you've chosen to follow Christ. But either way, these hardships do not mean that God loves you less or that you've been separated from his love. God's love is greater than these hardships. Next, we see that we are more than conquerors through Christ. We are more than conquerors through Christ. And this is one of those passages in Scripture, I think, that is so overheard that sadly loses its meaning, I think, to a lot of us. I mean, listen again to what it actually says. It says, in all things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Is that not incredible? Does that not give you incredible joy and comfort that all things were more than conquerors through him who loved us? Christian, you are indeed a conqueror because Christ has died for you and loved you. And you are now found in him who is the conqueror. And the word actually means hyper-conqueror or, or over-conqueror, which is not a real word. That's why we translate it to more than conquerors. The, 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 the Christian, the idea is that the Christian overwhelmingly conquers because they are supremely victorious in Jesus Christ. And I said, well, what makes this victory so supreme? It's supreme because it's a victory that is found only in Christ. And it's a victory that is unlike any other victory. In what ways? I'll give a few ways, quickly. One way in which is that this victory is victory over the schemes of the devil. Satan still seeks victory today, but he will never obtain it. And Satan works his schemes in this world. But in Christ, we have complete and final victory over Satan and his schemes. There is no victory for Satan. Christ has the ultimate victory. Also, this victory is a victory over the trials of this world. 
which we talked a little bit about already. At times, it may seem as if trials have victory over us. It feels as if they've won and we cannot continue. We may feel paralyzed or at a loss because of our trials. But just as we read a couple weeks ago, that God works all things together for good to those who love him. That trials have no victory over you. And in Christ you share in his victories over trials. There is no trial too big for God to overcome. This victory is also a victory over sin and death. That Christ claimed victory at the empty tomb. Sin no longer has a grip on the Christian. And we still sin. And we still struggle. But we've been set free from the bondage and the rule of the sin in our lives. And so we now can obey God. We now can worship God. And we are no longer enslaved to our sin. And one day in our new bodies, we will be completely free of the remnants of the sin in our lives. And death no longer has a grip on us either, Christian. That because of the wages of sin is death, and as Christ has given us victory over sin, that we no longer bear the weight of death. That we will have a physical death, yes, but that physical death only ushers us into life. Because of Christ, we are no longer spiritually dead, but we are spiritually alive. And one day we will see Jesus face to face because death has no grip and no authority over us any longer. And also this victory is eternal. It is eternal. This victory will not expire and it will not change and it will not run out. But this victory is forever, eternal, and secure in the hands of God. You see, we, we have victories on earth, but they come and go. Records are set and then they're broken. We have great moments and then they crumble. Well, they're forgotten. We have great achievements. And they expire. Not the victories we have in Christ. These are eternal. So you see, in all of these ways, Christian, you are victorious. You are a conqueror. And not because you are so great or because you work so hard to conquer these things, but because you are, you are more than a conqueror through him who loves you. It is Christ who is the conqueror. We do not have these victories apart from Christ. But in him, we have all the victories that we need. Victories unlike any others. Victories that are eternal. We are secure in these victories. And we are secure in his love now and forever. And our last main point is that nothing will separate us. We've seen God will not separate us, our sin will not separate us, hardships will not separate us, and nothing will separate us. And just one point here to wrap us up is that you can be confident that nothing will separate you from the love of God. And these verses, 38 and 39, are really just a summary of what's already been said. And it's a beautiful, wonderful summary. Listen to it again. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
He says, for I am sure, or for I am convinced. There's no doubt about it. There's confidence in this promise that nothing will separate you from the love of God. Christian, be confident. Not in yourself, but be confident in the Lord that He will hold on to you and that nothing will separate you from His love. Are you sure of this? Are you convinced of this? That nothing, nothing at all will be able to separate you from the love of God. I don't know if there are more comforting words in all of Scripture than the words found in these two verses. And not just because of the assurance that there's nothing that can separate us, but because of the object of this promise, that the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Because there's nothing greater than the love of God. Nothing. Not even close. And it is this, it is the love of God that is promised to us that will never be taken from us. We may lose money. We may lose our reputation. We may lose comfort. We may lose good health or good looks or our homes or our freedoms or family members or friends and even our own life. But we will never lose the love of God. That is eternally secured for us. And all those other things, they don't come close in value or importance than the love of God. The love of God is truly all we need and is the love of God that we can be convinced is fully secure for us in Christ Jesus. Nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. While there are many things in this world that are fleeting, while there are many things in this world that could be taken from us, that are not truly secure, this we know, that for those in Christ, your salvation and the love of God is fully secured for you in Christ Jesus. There's nothing at all that can separate you from the love of God. Christians have been given eternal life by God. And if this eternal life could be snatched out of God's hand, if the Christian could be taken away from God, then it would no longer be eternal life. It would be a temporary life that maybe or maybe not would be eternal. But indeed, it is eternal life. And indeed, God has secured it for you, Christian, for all of eternity. So what does this mean for the Christian? It means that you've been shown love and grace far beyond measure. Do you see the depth of God's grace? He is the one. He is the one who foreknew you. He is the one who predestined you. He is the one who called you. He is the one who justified you. He is the one who glorified you. As we looked at the verse before, we looked at this last week, and he is the one who forever secures you. This is not about you. This is about him. Even the security of our salvation is based on the goodness and the grace of God. Just as we can only love God because he first loved us. In the same way, we can only hold on to God because God holds on to us. 
He is the one who forever secures us. Do you see his amazing grace? If you if you simply just just brush off his grace, like, yeah, it's okay, it's fine, it's good. But I don't know that you really understand the grace of God. I hope you are awestruck by this grace. I hope this grace is crippling and yet energizing. I hope this grace creates a deep sense of humility and a deep sense of urgency to live your life in total devotion and worship to God. And not only that, but as you see the great grace and security that you have in Christ, I hope it creates in you a true joy and peace, knowing that the greatest treasure in all of the universe and all of eternity is forever in your hands. Nothing will separate you from the greatest gift of all, the love of God. What else do you need, Christian? What could be better than the love of God? Now, if you're not a Christian, if you're here, you're not a Christian, you are separated from God. You are separated from God. You are separated from the love of God. You do not have this kind of specific love from God. There is a wall of hostility between you and God. But there is hope in Jesus Christ. Jesus has broken the wall of hostility. You cannot break that wall on your own. You cannot obtain eternal life or the security of God's love on your own. You need Jesus. And in him you have life. So come to Jesus. And find true everlasting life. Be encouraged. In Christ, nothing can separate us from the love of God. We are eternally secure in him. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for your love. Thank you that we are secure in you. God, that you hold on to us forever. God, there's nothing that we or anyone else can do to separate us from your love. Thank you, God, for that great promise and truth. Lord, I pray that we would be so overwhelmed by your grace that we would respond in worship. God, to your glory and your praise. Amen.